You may be seated. Good evening. I want to welcome any visitors that might be here for our Thursday night study. We uh, take a book and go in depth into it. We are in the book of Ephesians. And uh, we are in chapter 4, verse 11 to 13 tonight. If you have a Bible, would you turn there, please? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13. This is part 1. The message is entitled, The Purpose of the Gifted Men. We have uh, looked at the gifted men Jesus gave to the church in Ephesians 4.11. Some apostles, some evangelists, some prophets, some pastor teachers. That's one gift. Not five, but four. There are six things that describes the purpose of these gifted men. Tonight, we want to look at only three of them, which are found, and I want to go back and touch verse 11, so 11 through 13. Let me read here. It says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastor teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith in the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to a, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The three things that first describe the purpose of these gifted men given to the church is the following. First, for the benefit of the body of Christ, verse 11. Second, for the equipping of the body of Christ, verse 12. Thirdly, for the maturing of the body of Christ. First comes the benefit of the body of Christ, verse 11. Now notice, Paul the Apostle declared that the gifted men were given to the church by Jesus himself as gifts. Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more would your heavenly Father give to you the gift of the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Luke eleven thirteen. The contrast in this verse that I'm focusing on is we're being evil, he's good. He only gives what is good. In fact, James uh, 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So everything that comes into our life is from God. Okay? It's not of our own doing or anything else. It comes directly from God. Now, God gives gifts and what is needed for the believer out of agape love. The greatest gift is his son, of course, John 3.16. The hope we have uh, does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit given to us, Romans 5.5. 5. Giving, giving. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are given to each person out of love. And perfect wisdom is to be used for the edifying the body in love. Ephesians 4.16 is going to tell us. There are 21 spiritual gifts that are listed in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, and 1 Peter 4.10. He gives us that. Those are three lists. Now, notice the Apostle Paul, having declared these gifted men, did not imply that these were and are given as a ruling body of the church but only to serve them for spiritual growth in this context. Many are teaching today 
that the church is to be led by a combination of senior pastors and elders. But as we will see, it is a contradiction to the scriptures. You have multiplicity of elders that run the church. They all share in the same authority. That all of them have equal say in the decisions of the church. That each of them have equal authority in the church matters. This is a contradiction to the very principles of relationship of Christ and his church. That's a democracy. The principle is Christ in relationship to the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He instructs. He guides. He directs the church. Ephesians 5.23 tells us. This principle is carried over to the husband and wife relationship as we'll see in chapter 5. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Ephesians 5.23. In no time is this headship of Christ or the pastor or the husband ever dictatorial or abusive. But as a servant. That's important to understand. The pastor is an under-shepherd called, anointed and sent by God. He is the one responsible to Jesus, there being only one head to each body, never two, three, or four. That doesn't mean that there's no other elders. It doesn't mean there's no deacons. But it means that there's one head to one body, one shepherd. Today, a lot of people are teaching that, you know, they have a congregation, they have ten equal head pastors. You ever see a person with two heads? Now we've seen a snake with two heads. There are traditional church governments. And this will point out what I'm saying. The Episcopal form of government, this form of government comes from the word bishop. The word bishop in the singular or episkopos in the plural means Overseer, if you were with us in our study of the pastoral epistles, you already know this. A man in charge with the duty of seeing that things to be done by others are done rightly. Be it any curator, guardian, or superintendent is the basic definition. When used In the Bible, it refers to a superintendent, an elder, or overseer in and of a Christian church. Describing the function, what he does, but never in a co-pastoring with the head pastor. They are merely assisting pastors. Mario is an assisting pastor, which is his administrator here. Fernando's an assisting pastor, but he takes over the children's ministry. They're all assisting pastors, but they're not the pastor. And I don't want to use the term the pastor as I'm the only. No, that's not it. But there's only one head, you understand? And that head should be the greatest servant of all. If I have to run around and say I'm pastor, there's a problem. Then I'm not pastor. If you have to walk around and say I'm the head of this house in your house, you're not head. Here's the tale. Simple. Two times it appears in the singular 
for the replacement of Judas Iscariot, his bishopry let another take, and for the church office, if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good thing. Acts 1, um, 20, and 1 Timothy 3, 1. Three times in the plural, addressed to bishops in the church, and pastor, and a pastor is a bishop. You have it Philippians 1, 1, 1 Timothy 2, 2, Titus 1, 1. So, I'm a pastor, but I'm also an elder. I'm also a bishop. I oversee, and I have age. Look, look at the gray hair. Okay? I'm bald. So that's one form of government the church is run by. And they all have equal say. Then there is the uh, presbytery form of government, which you get the, the uh, denomination of the Presbyterians. Okay? Now, this form of government comes from the word elders. The word elders, presbyterials, means the older of two people or someone advanced in life, an older senior person. It's basic definition. The word um, elders is also used for the rank or the office in the Old Testament uh, for the Jewish leaders of the Sanhedrin and those in the church. And you find that in 1 Timothy 5.1, 5.17, 5.19, Titus 1.5, and 1 Peter 5.1-5. But you have the same thing in the Old Testament. You had elders in the Old Testament. So a bishop describes what he does. He oversees and superintends. You see? And an elder describes who he is. A man of age who oversees and serves the church, but never in a co-pastoring with the head pastor. Never. We never find that in Scripture at all. And yet, a lot of that is done today. And yet, both of these terms are used synonymously and interchangeably, as you know, through the Scriptures. Elders and bishops. They're synonymous. They're used synonymous, but there's a little distinction. Okay? The bishop describes the function he oversees, and the elder describes the person in the office. Okay? And they're used synonymous. Now, there's also the congregational form of government. This form of government describes the church body as ruled by a democracy. That is to say, the majority rules and they vote on every decision. We've never voted on anything because Christ is the head of the church. We've just followed the lead of Jesus. <laughs> He's the head. And if God is in the ministry, then we follow his lead. And we believe that God began this ministry with three people. I didn't start it. He did. I just started. I just did a Bible study. And then he was the one to put it together. And the years have proven the evidence of what God said or not. Am I saying that we're perfect? We never made mistakes? No. But God, through his faith, over 35 years, has brought people, saved people, matured people, used people. He takes care of the things, right? Simple. This has to be the worst form of government for a church, as well as a nation, but more so for a church. Because if you have a group of people that are not really born again, then they're making decisions based on carnality, right? The world. 
And if you have people that are carnal in the church, they're going to vote on carnal things. Now, if you have all spiritual people, then the voting is good. But democracy is the worst form of government. Worst form of government. The majority rules. So you've got libs, 56%, they're going to win all the time. Wow. Many churches run like this. There is the Old Testament government, that of one man called by God to lead the people of God. Moses was to pick 70 men, and God would anoint them with the same spirit to bear the burden of the people with him. But Moses was the chosen leader by God, Numbers 11, 60-17. There's the model. Jethro, father-in-law, advised them, but he was not the shepherd of the people. In Exodus 18, 13 through 16, 13 through 16, he advised him to delegate. You're going to kill yourself, Moses. Can't hear everybody. Then there's, that is one shepherd for each church. That's what the Bible teaches. Paul pastored Ephesus, Acts 20, 31. He said he was a pastor. Timothy was left as a pastor, 1 Timothy 1, 3. John the Beloved pastored Ephesus after the fact, the Timothy. Tradition tells us that history. Epaphras was a pastor of Colossae, Colossians 1, 7, 4, 12. Titus pastored the church of Crete, Titus 1, 5. To Timothy and the elders, yes. But didn't write the three or four pastors. Never. The messages to the seven churches of Revelation addressed to the messenger. That word messenger can be translated angelos, angel. Okay? Angels don't preach from pulpits. It's the pastor. If you went through our series of the seven churches of Revelation, you understand that. The messages are written to seven literal churches. They have to be seven literal pastors, Right? Angels don't preach from pulpits. <laughs> Simple. The interesting thing is that the church fathers attest to this very form of government in the early church. One pastor for one church. That's the biblical form. Some of the fears and objections by some to the one pastor is that the man can become a tyrant and a dictator and oppressive to the body of Christ and fleece it. And absolutely, that's a danger. In fact, that happens a lot of times. But the elders and bishops are men who the pastor interacts with and listens to their advice. He's open. But if a pastor gets off the wall, all the people have to do is get up and leave the church. You get up and leave. Leave the man with the building. <laughs> What's he going to do? Simple. The pastor can and will seek their counsel, recognizing he is accountable to God and man, but not to ask their permission on how to run the church or what to teach. That's, in, that, that's, that's silly. That's unbiblical. And yet some pastors are just hirelings. They get hired by a board. They get told what to preach, how long to preach, and when to preach. They're not the pastor. 
The denomination hires them. The board hires them. I call that a corporation. A business. They are complementary for the body. All are different and distinct with gifts. All magnify unity by their diversity. Remember this whole section is a key. 1 through 16. Unity. The body of Christ. A well-equipped carpenter has a well-rounded tool chest to meet every need, as you know. Yet he is the carpenter. A well-run company has many talented and capable people, but there is but one owner making decisions for the company. We need to recognize the calling of God on a man to lead a church by the enabling by God alone. And he should be the first to be in awe that God has called him and enabled him. And time is the one that proves it all out. Time is the test of all things, ladies and gentlemen. His gift as pastor, teacher to feed and protect the flock of God, describing one gift, not two, as I said. His ability to lead and direct the church through the years faithfully, regardless of the difficult times. His life of godliness, never sinless or perfect. His refusal to take any credit or glory for all that God has done, resulting in the fruit of his ministry. It's all of God. That's why I don't write a book. Nobody will buy it. It's one word. How do you explain the existence of your ministry? God. Not big sales. They want fantastic stories. You want me to tell how I lost my eye and how big revelation and God called me and anointed me and how much I sacrificed and how much I... That's what they want. It's kind of like our news on TV. Hmm. First Timothy four thirteen through fifteen says, "Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by the prophecy, by the laying on the hands of the leadership, or eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, for your progress." may be evident to all. We need um, to recognize that the gifted men are given for a a complete and competent and effective ministry to develop the body of Christ. All these men that we've we've, we've gone through in verse 11. They're not called to compete with each other. Um, There is a caution um, to blind total submission to a pastor-teacher. A great caution. When the qualities of feeding, faithfulness, and godliness are not present, it's ludicrous to do that. We submit to one another because we see each other as an example of Christ and the love of Christ and our love for one another. All teaching must be examined and should be questioned when there is any doubt without 
the pastor being tweaked or offended. When I get done with every sermon, I stand here to pray for you and answer any question you might have over the text. There isn't a sermon that I haven't done that I haven't done that. <laughs> Acts 17.11 says, These, meaning the Bereans, were more fair-minded in that, than those of the Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out if those things were so. And so we are to be good Bereans. First Timothy 4.16 says, Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, continue in them. For in so doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. So we're to put on our thinking cap. We're to examine the scripture. The scripture is the plumb line over and over again. So the purpose of, of the purpose for the gifted men is first for the benefit of the body of Christ. They are, they are given as a gift to the church for the body. For the benefit of the body. Notice secondly, comes verse 12. For the equipping of the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul declared the gifted men are for the equipping of the saints. Mark that well. The word equipping there has the idea of making a person fit, enable them to be efficient. The word is used for setting a broken limb or joint back in place by a surgery. The word is used also for bringing together opposing political factions so that the government can go on. And this noun form appears only this time, but in the verb form it is used for mending nets in Matthew 4.21. Remember, the entire section deals with unity again. Now, the ones to be perfected or made fit for being efficient, notice, is the saints. Saints, hagios, it means to set apart. We get our word holy from it. We get our word sanctify, sanctified, and sanctification. The individual and individuals here are those who have accepted Christ. Saints. There's only saints and ain'ts. So either you're a saint tonight, you're an ain't. One of the two. Having heard the gospel, they agree with God that they were sinners. Seeing their lost condition under the wrath of God, they repented from their sins, as you and I have. Having made Jesus their Lord and Savior, they know all their sins are forgiven. Believing Jesus became literal sin for them and paid it on the cross. This is the individual he's talking about in this whole section. Notice the Apostle Paul declared, the gifted men are for the work of ministry. To equip the believers for the work of ministry. The word ministry, diakonia, means service or to serve. Simple. The word is used for the service of the widows in Acts 6.1, when they thought they were being ripped off by the, from the Greeks to the Hebrew in favoritism. The word is used for Paul being put into the ministry in 1 Timothy 1.12. Same word. The context is going to tell you what kind of ministry it is. Okay? What kind of work? What kind of service? We get our word deacon from it. The word deacon is diakonos. It means one who serves. The word is used for those who 
serve the body of Christ in 1 Timothy 3.8 and 12. Deacons. Now the word work, ergon, simply means business or employment. That which one is occupied in. So the context is important in which way it's being used. The word appears 176 times in the New Testament. It's an important word. That which one undertakes to do in word, act, deed, things done in the service to any member of the body of Christ or the church. That's what it's talking about. The idea of working is emphasized in opposition to that which is less than work. So, it doesn't mean that we don't do anything, that we just sit around and contemplate our navel or something. There's more to just, though learning is important, and that's what this context is all about. There must be something done about the learning, right? (laughs) First living and then fleshing it out. So the purpose of the church is to prepare every believer to serve in the capacity God has gifted him or her in the church. That's the role of these gifted men. By and through the four gifted men that focus on different aspects of ministry. To be well-rounded Christians in growth, development, and maturity, as we'll see. This is to go on for our entire Life. This is nothing less than the priesthood of believers in First Peter 2, 4 through 10. If you were with us in our series of the nature of the church, you remember the priesthood of the believers. See, it's not just I'm the one and there's a big gap between the laity and here. No, we're all. The priesthood of believers, we're all gifted. We're all called to do something. We have different functions, just like the body. Okay? Priesthood of believers. But not only through the four gifted men, but by and through the word, the only standard and instruction for God. This also is through this whole section. The word of God is objective and never changed. It never is subjective. We live in a subjective society. We've gone from a moral society to an amoral society. From an objective true society to a subjective subjective true society. That means there's no truth. That means you get to say what you believe is truth. And your truth, it, it, it cannot be questioned because it's relative and, and only you alone have to experience that truth. That's existentialism. And therefore, when you tell that truth, no one can say that it's not truth because you experience it yourself. Sounds smart, doesn't it? It's scrambled brains. That's what it is. Objective truth is objective truth. Right is right. Wrong is wrong. Up is up and down is down. White is white and black is black. The moon and the sun both hang in the sky, but they're two different things. You must make judgments, ladies and gentlemen, every day of your life. The Word of God is objective, never subjective. The Word of God transcends culture, tradition, and time. The purpose of the church is not to evangelize the world as so many teach. Evangelism is the loving response of a well-taught and healthy church to reach out to the lost. 
But Christians need to know God's word to give an answer to every person, be they believer or unbeliever. The purpose of the church is to perfect the same for the work of ministry. And the other thing we're talking about, and there'll be three more. But the purpose of the church primarily is not to evangelize the world. A lot of people get it, but you don't know the word of God. What are you going to tell them? All you're going to tell them is just to be saved. And that's good, but that's, that's, that's basic. That's just foundation, right? If all you want to do is school and you learn addition, that's it. Whoa. It's not good enough. Addition, subtraction is good. Multiplication, division, foundational. But there's geometry, trig, quantus, all that. Many more. Notice the uh, Apostle Paul declared the gifted men are for the edifying of the body of Christ. The word edifying again means the act of building, literally. The context is the act of each person in Christ doing anything and everything possible to promote what is good and beneficial for the body of Christ. That's why you're here tonight. To grow, get grounded in your relationship with Jesus Christ, to become more adult as we'll see, so you can do what God has called you to do. It's all for His glory and it's for the benefit of the body. The word here appears two other times in the epistle. In uh, 4.16, it says, From whom the whole body joint and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causing growth of the body for edification. How? Of its, itself in love. There's the motive. Edification in love. The other one is found in 4.29. Let no corrupt... Word, proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearer? Edification. So the edification of every believer will differ, but it is in view to edify the body. As every believer seeks the best of each, the best for each believer in the body of Christ. Just like your hand. Your hand is seeking to do the good for the rest of the body. It takes your shoe, puts it on your feet. Your hand does not grab your shoe and smack your foot. Doesn't do that. This hand serves the rest of the body. Simple. You're here for everybody else. You're not here for yourself. I am not here for myself. My gifts are mainly for you. I benefit, I grow from it, but they're for you. We edify the body, be it through serving it, teaching them, confronting and even rebuking somebody. You're edifying. Person's in sin, and you know it. You're the only one, and you don't confront them in love. You don't love them. Be it an exhorting, comforting them. Whatever way is needed. Notice the emphasis of verse 12 is the dependent on the walk of the believer based on all that proceeds from verse 1 through 12. This is the sum total of it. Verse 1 and 2, to walk worthy of the calling on which you were called, 
with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the faith, of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. 4 through 6, the reason being, there is one body, one Spirit, just as there is one call of your hope, of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all and through you and in you all. Paul was a southerner. And then we have verse 7, the accountability. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then verse 8 and 10, or 8 through 10, Jesus made it all possible. Therefore, he said, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. He gave gifts to men. Now, this is he who ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first ascended also to the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And lastly, verse 11, the gifted men. All of this. Listen to 1 Corinthians twelve twenty six. And if one member suffers, we all suffer. One member rejoices or is honored, we all rejoice. Right? Because of the new birth. But I still have the carnal nature. I can still say, ah, you know, something bad happened to you. Ah, you deserve a sucker. That's what you get. You know? I even may think that. But the Holy Spirit will rebuke me. Then I got to obey whether I repent on it and say, Lord, forgive me. Or just go on with it, right? It's a choice. If the only thing that a company did was to advertise and promote their product, but did not equip people to deliver the product with quality, what do you think would become of that company? Absolutely zippo. Each of us needs to be equipped by the Word and the Holy Spirit for service to edify the body. There's no exception from the pulpit to the pew. Ephesians 5, 18 and 20, as we get there, says this. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a key. You must walk in the Spirit so you don't walk in the flesh, so you don't fulfill us of the flesh. Galatians tells you that. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the Word of God, or Christ, dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. You have the Spirit, you have the Word. Gas and ignition. They go together. Each of us should be excited and zealous to be equipped for service because God has called and enabled us for these works to build up the body. Ephesians 1.3 has told us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. He has given us every spiritual blessing. Everything that we need. There's nothing we lack. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His 
workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we want to obey God. We want to follow God's lead. We want to, you know, be sensitive to what God. We want to seek His will. Each of us, when we are equipped to serve and to and do so, is out of agape love that cannot do enough. So the whole aspect of growing in Christ through the Word and the Spirit is that we, as we will see, is to become more like Jesus. John the Baptist says, I must decrease, he must increase, right? We constantly in Romans and in Ephesians and Colossians, the new man versus the old man, right? And he says, put one off and put one on. It's a choice. It doesn't happen automatically. Wish it did. So agape love is the motive by which we serve. Um, listen to um, Colossians 3, 12 through 14. It says, therefore, as the elect of God, that's you and I, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, there's your marker. You, so you also must do. It's emphatic, a command. But above all these things, put on agape, which is the bond of perfection. Agape love is the belt that holds everything together. It's not an, it's not a choice if you want to forgive anybody. You're commanded to forgive just as Christ has forgave you. When people ask you forgiveness. Okay? Now you've come to the end of yourself. And if you think that, that you can forgive anything to anybody, get up so we can laugh at you. It just doesn't happen naturally. It only happens in Christ Jesus. And that doesn't happen, doesn't happen easy. <laughs> the last thing that dies is my flesh. You got to crucify it daily. And so the purpose of the gifted men is for the equipping of the body of Christ. That's what a pastor teacher does. That's what all these men in balance do. Notice third and last for the maturing of the body of Christ in verse 13. The Apostle Paul declared the gifted men are for the Duration necessary for every believer to grow and develop constantly in order to be grounded and stable. Listen to the words, till we all come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God. The transformation of a Christian takes a lifetime. We are under construction. You see a, a woman who's pregnant, at first you don't even know she's pregnant, but she's under construction. There's a baby in there. And God in nine months makes another human being come out of there. <laughs> Not like the, like the father, like the mother. All the genes in there. We are under construction. The word till means until or unto. The idea of arriving at or attaining to something. Having a start and a finish. The word appears 70 times. In the New Testament. The ones who are working through this process are the believers. The personal pronoun we refers to the Christians. 
The word all means each, every, and anyone, refuting anyone who might think to be the exception to this process. There's no exception to this process at all. The word come means to arrive, affirming the capability of every Christian to reach that expected goal. When you're born again, you have everything given to you. Second Peter chapter 1, 3 through 4. For godliness. Everything, a divine nature. When that baby's born, everything is in there. And then when they come to, to birth, they are a full human being, but only as a baby. And in time, man, they, everything will come out. Their character, their genes, everything. But they come out with everything intact. There are exceptions, there are deformities, but we're looking at the aspect of the birth, the completeness of that person. An arm is not added after birth, comes out. Two arms, two legs, one head. Now notice the goal that every believer should be moving towards is twofold. The unity of the faith, trusting Jesus alone as the object of their salvation and enablement. No one else. Yes, God may use a pastor teacher, but you're not dependent on me. I'm just one that's been called and anointed to teach as a pastor teacher. But we give glory to God. But you're dependent on the Lord, the Spirit of God, the Word of God that you hold. Walking worthy of the calling, which we are called as we've seen, in all lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering, forbearing one another, verse 1 and 2. You're trusting Jesus to do that in you and through you. I don't do that. When you're at home with your wife, your husband, I'm not there. Jesus is there with you. The Spirit helps you do that. Verse 3, endeavoring to not disrupt the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I'm not there when you're at home or at work, but Jesus is with you through the Spirit of God. Verse 4 and 5, understanding there's one body, one Spirit. Just as you're calling the one hope of the calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. I'm not there with you at home, at work, or wherever you are. The Lord is. Recognizing that each one of us is given that grace according to the measure of Christ. So I don't enable you to serve the body. I'm not the one working through you. Jesus is through His Spirit, right? As you're being taught, you're being ministered by the Lord. The Word, the Holy Spirit. He enables you. When you're there witnessing the person on the street and all of a sudden you don't think you know much scripture and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes upon you and this guy's asking all kinds of questions, you're just blattering off and you don't want to look appear like you're surprised, so you're just that. But when he leaves, you go, oh, I can't believe it. Where'd that stuff come from? Well, because you sit and you learn, you read and you study and the Holy Spirit brings it up when it's necessary, right? Simple. It's like computer language. Garbage in, garbage out, right? But if you put God's word in you, the Holy Spirit brings it out. Simple. Believing Jesus ascended on high. Leading captivity captive. Giving gifts to men. Then he ascended up to fill all things. As verse 8 through 10 says. All these things become mine. I believe it. This is what I can share with people. I know this. Appropriating the benefit of the gifted men that are listed here in verse 11. Learning from evangelists. 
And the pastor teacher and the others as we've covered them. Being well-rounded. There can be no real or lasting unity apart from the oneness in Christ. Amos 3.3, 3, can two walk together except they be agreed? No. We agree with Jesus. And if we all agree with Jesus, then we were, we've got unity, right? Because our submission is to Jesus, not to the pastor, not to each other. We do submit to one another. But only what the scripture declares, but not in some tyrannical or totalitarian submission or anything. No. The knowledge of the Son of God, notice, is the second thing here. Salvation is the mere start or of our spiritual life by the foundational knowledge. It's fundamental. Salvation is fundamental. It's great. It's a gift of God. And we should thank God for that, but it's only, it's only the beginning. The word knowledge, epinosis, with the prefix epi, it means full knowledge, precise knowledge, correct knowledge that goes beyond the doctrine of salvation given to us. And all this is given to us by the Father through the Spirit, Ephesians 1.17 has told us. Listen to, um, to um, the book of Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. He says, Therefore, leaving the discussions of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on. To perfection, that's maturity. Not laying again the foundation of the of repentance from dead works and faith towards God, or of doctrines of baptism, laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permit. The Hebrews were 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 they were in an arrested state spiritually. They should have been teachers, and yet they needed someone to teach them still. They're still talking about, oh, yeah, I got saved. That. You know anything about the second coming? You know anything about prayer? You know anything about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? You know anything about sanctification? You know anything? I mean, is it, you've got to go beyond your salvation. The believer is to grow spiritually understanding the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the gifts of the Spirit. All the different doctrines. Go through every book. But it is not based on mere academic information about Jesus, but a personal relationship that is transforming us, causing us to grow, develop, in a loving personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Philippians 3, 10 through 11, says that I may know him, Paul saying, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being transformed or conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Philippians three ten and 11. To grow more and more. Stop and think how far you've come since you've repented from your sins, the years that you've been walking with God. There's some people that have been saved 30, 40 years. They're still dad, dad, mama, scraping their knees and wetting their pants, spiritually speaking. You know, there's some teachers that teach high school. They're teachers for 25 years. They taught the same thing for 25 years. They haven't grown, haven't developed. Neither have their students. They just have a job. Wow. Notice the Apostle Paul here declared the gifted men are for individual maturity. 
to, perf- to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The word perfect, once again, does not mean sinless, but it's brought to be brought to an end or a necessary completeness. This, again, never means that you don't sin any longer as a Christian, that you're perfect. Like some people say, oh, you think you're perfect? No, we're not perfect. But a mature state, that's what it's talking about, at every level of the believer's growth and development. When a child is acting, he's 12 years old, and there's two seven-year-olds, and he's, they're messing around with them. And the father said, and, and they're, you know, they're being just wild and everything. And, and, and the older child, the father, hey, act your age. I can take it from the two there, but you, right? That's what Paul is saying. Every age has a mature level. You, you don't ask a seven-year-old to act like a 12-year-old. But if he's seven years old, you want him to act like a seven-year-old. Are you two years in the Lord? Have you grown those two years? Are you 10 years, 20 years, 30, 40? Where are you at? Are you tracking? Without individual maturity, there will never be unity. Individual immaturity will hinder corporate body maturity. You've got a carnal church. You've got a bunch of selfish people. Notice the level of spiritual maturity that is to be reached is to be in proportion to their full potential in Christ. The measure, it says, literally it means the instrument for measuring. The word is metron. In Spanish it says metro. It's a measuring. It's a tape measure. (laughs) That's what it is. In our context it means to the portion. The stature means age or length of life. So the believer is to come to a mature adult age in Christ. According to his age, he's to come to that full maturity in growth and development and maturity. Don't confuse them. You can grow. Your child grows, he's seven years old, but if one arm is shorter than the other, he hasn't developed properly, right? And if he's 21 years old and he's acting like a 12, he hasn't reached maturity, right? So each stage, each age has growth, development, and maturity. And this is the context within, spiritually speaking, in Christ Jesus. The extent of this growth, development, maturity is to be in relationship to the fullness of Christ's notice. The word fullness, we've seen it before, plumora, it means that which fills or which is the thing um, that is filled with. In other words, the sum of the qualities that make Christ what he is and now are vested to us in Christ to ultimate be just like him when we are presented with him. So, John the Baptist, I must decrease, he must increase. We are in transition, constantly under construction, right? But I want to make sure that I'm not what I was last year. 
I want to make sure that I haven't been the same for the last 10 years. The word is used in Ephesians 1.23, which is his body, talking about us. The fullness of him who fills all things. So in a way that we can't understand, as we looked at chapter 1, verse 23, we in a way complete Christ being the fullness of him because he has poured himself in us. Wow. A mystery. (laughs) Try to figure that one out. As a child is a joy of the parents at birth. But the greater joy lies in the future as the child continues to grow, develop, and mature to a capable, functional, responsible citizen for the good and the benefit of society. They're not living for themselves. If you give your daughter and your son everything, God help the person they marry. You have just made a hell for that person. If you teach them to be responsible and giving and hardworking, it'll be a whole different matter. If we keep failing the same test every time, we're not growing in Christ. I'm not growing in that area. James uh, 1, 2 through 4 puts it this way. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the test of your faith produces patience. But let patience have a perfect work that you may be perfect, mature, and complete, lacking nothing. So, if I don't exact growth and develop maturity of myself first, Something's wrong. I should be the first to jump on me. I I shouldn't have to wait for somebody to, because they see me. Hey, what, what? Only as we abide in Christ can we bear good fruit. Listen to Jesus, John 15, 4 through 5. Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Are you thoroughly convinced of that? You must be thoroughly convinced of that. Absolutely. It's the absolute objective truth. We need to be careful that we do not become complacent thinking we have arrived spiritually, but to pursue spiritual maturity that we not remain in spiritual infanthood. Peter puts it this way, First Peter 2, 1 through 3. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word. So there's a legitimate point of being a baby. You don't bring a baby home and give him steak. Give him milk. The milk of the word. 
that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So milk is legitimate, but you don't want to remain in that state. Matthew 5, 48, Jesus puts it this way. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Mature. On every level. That means there's growth. That means development. Because you're serving. All this growth, development, and maturity is in the context of serving. Some people think God has given the gift of sitting. There's no such gift. It's called entitlement. Laziness. Irresponsibility. What if I prayed and said, okay, you guys can go home. And you get up and your legs say, I'm not going over. I'm not getting up. Your legs wouldn't do what they're called to do. Even if your head sent the message, I'm not getting up. I'm not moving. How'd you get up? It entered your body, right? Your hand, I'm not opening that door. The other hand, me either. I can open the door. Too often the church is like that. The purpose for the gifted men is for the maturing of the body of Christ. It's all in the context of service. Absolute service. The priesthood of the believer. What a joy. And how I commend many of you in the outreaches and the medical outreaches. And we do the, um, the outreach to counter Halloween and the Christmas stuff and, and the shoebox. This body is great. You're a great example to me and others. I commend you. And so the purpose of these gifted men is for the benefit of the body of Christ, for the equipping of the body of Christ, and for the maturing of the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. We love you. We thank you. And we pray, Lord, you would continue to just deal with our hearts. Thank you for equipping us, Lord, and enabling us to serve you and each other. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you believe that Jesus is God who became man and died for you and rose from the dead, then you can call upon his name. A prayer of repentance is what he requires. This is your prayer to Jesus if you want to be born again tonight. Maybe you're over the internet. You can do the same thing right where you sit. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.